Psalm number 19 in your Bible today. Psalm number 19 in your Bible. And the subject is sola scriptura, by Scripture alone. And I'll tell you more about that phrase as we proceed here. Sola scriptura. Sola, the word meaning alone or the word from which we get our word solo. And so Scripture alone, if you will, by Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Psalm number 19, stand please as we read from God's Word. And we're reading today one of the greatest passages on the Bible found in the Bible. Let me say it again because I want you to grasp that real clearly. One of the greatest passages on the Bible found in the Bible. And so let's read it together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, space, if you will, shows His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language anywhere on the earth where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world, in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And moreover by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from my secret faults, and keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And you may be seated. During the Reformation several hundred years ago, when people were leaving the established church, the Catholic Church, and Protestantism was formed. And uh, I remind you again that Baptists, in one sense, truly are not Protestants. Most Baptists don't know that. But we were not protesting at that point. We've been protesting since the first century. And so Baptists had, uh, Baptists uh, were a different strain, if you will, of Christianity, a different river of it. But those who were leaving the Catholic Church, the Lutherans and Episcopalians and Presbyterians and so on, those people call themselves Reformers. And the Reformation was when they left, they exited the church. 
And they had five rallying cries that they rallied around. And number one was sola scriptura. We will be people of the book. We will be people who the Bible will be our ultimate authority, not the church. Now, they had other things, sola, uh, sola fide, which was by faith alone, sola gratia, which was by grace alone, sola Christus, by Christ alone, sola dio gloria, meaning for the glory of God alone. And they rallied around those five rallying cries. But today, I want to focus on the Scripture. And as I told you, this is, you have before you one of the greatest passages on the Bible, found in the Bible. A passage that tells us that God's Word is absolutely sufficient. The sufficiency of Scripture, we get that doctrine from this passage among others. Sola Scriptura means the Scripture is sufficient for us. It means that all truth necessary for your salvation and all truth necessary to live a godly life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in the Scripture. That if you were deserted on a desert island and you couldn't take but one book and you had a Bible, you would have in your hand for the rest of your life on that desert island everything that God wanted you to know to be able to understand His truth, to know how to live your life, you would have guidance from God Himself for living, and you would have everything that you would need to be a godly Christian the rest of your life. No preacher, no church, no, no friends, but you would have the book of God, and it would be sufficient for all of your spiritual needs. I had a visit the other day from a young man who was just about to get his doctorate in theology from uh, Outstanding Seminary, and he came by to see me. And he said, I want to talk to you about some things, pastoring and so on. And so we sat and talked probably for an hour and a half. And he said, let me tell you why I came and I wanted to talk to you is because You've been here 52 years, so you've got some experience. But the big reason I wanted to talk to you is because of your high view of Scripture, your high view. He said, I don't know if you know it or not, but your church is well known for their high view of Scripture. And that was such a blessing to me. I just had to share it with you. I'm not saying that in a boastful way about us, but I'm glad that people when they think of the Florence Baptist Temple, they think those people have elevated the Word of God. They have a high view of Scripture. And that's what the Reformers believed when they talked about sola scriptura. By that, they meant that, first of all, the Bible is divinely inspired. It was, it was written by the Holy Spirit. He's the author of it. Now, understand, he used human authors and you know about those authors, 40 of them written over, uh, wrote the Bible over a 1,500-year period of time. 
And so he progressively revealed what he wants us to know in the Scripture through these men. But it was the Holy Spirit who put within their mind and heart the thoughts. He even guided their pens, we believe, as they wrote down the words of the Scripture itself. And then not only did God inspire the Scripture, but he has preserved the Scripture. I can stand here today and hold a book in my hand, leather and paper and ink and glue and whatever else is there. I can hold in my hand this precious book. And this book, I can say without any fear of contradiction or equivocation, I can say to you, this is the book of God. This is the Word of God, the very Word of God. God inspired it, but He has preserved it, and He has given me a trustworthy and a reliable copy of it to guide me throughout my life. And then I can say something else. This is the final authority for me as a Christian. Not the church, not the preacher, not the pope, not the denomination, not what some magazine says or what my friends think, my peers. The final authority in my life in terms of my faith and my belief and that my instruction for Christian living will be the Word of God. And when something else contradicts the Word of God, I will stand with the Word of God, not with prevailing opinion or denominations or preachers. This is my rock upon which I will rest my eternal soul. Now, in the passage that I read to you today, it breaks down into two major sections. You may want to mark that with your pen or pencil there. So we have Psalm 19, and verse 1 through 6 describes the book of God that we call nature, God's book of nature. Or you could write there beside that natural revelation, God revealed Himself through nature, through the physical creation, if you will. And then beginning in verse 7, you note a big change. The Scripture ceases to talk about nature and begins to talk about the Bible itself. And down through verse 9, it describes the Bible in a very eloquent and powerful way. And then it concludes there with some application of those thoughts. Note with me, first of all, the book of nature. And I won't spend but just a moment on it. The book of nature, God's. So God has two books, the book of nature and the written book, the Holy Scripture. He has natural revelation and he has special revelation. And the book of nature, natural or sometimes we call it general revelation, And it's important because, as verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, or the heavens' space, if you will, the whole solar system, shows His handiwork. And so, the book of nature, the book of the heavens specifically, nature reveals God to us. How do I know there's a God? Well, the greatest evidence of all is just to look at the world around me, just to look at nature itself, and especially look up to the heavens tonight. Get out of town where the lights are so bright, they obscure the lights of heaven, and 
Get out in the country where it's dark and look up there, and it will absolutely overwhelm you. It will amaze you because nature reveals a lot about God and His character. What does it reveal? Well, first of all, I look up at the heavens and I can say, God is great. It took someone beyond my comprehension to put all of that together that's up there. And then number two, nature reveals to me that that person who made that must be wise beyond my ability to comprehend. He must have knowledge that nobody else has ever had in all of history. And so it reveals God's power to be able to put those stars in their places and, and the solar system together. God's greatness, God's power, God's wisdom and knowledge. And you lump all those together and we say that's God's glory. That's God's glory. Dr. Harry Ironside wrote commentaries on the Bible, a great Bible preacher and teacher of years past. When I was a tiny little boy, I must have been about five or six years old, my daddy took me to hear Harry Ironside preach. I'm probably one of the last people on the earth to have heard Harry Ironside, and he was blind. He couldn't see a thing, and he walked out. His wife led him out to the pulpit from behind the pulpit in a city auditorium, a big auditorium, several thousand people. She led him out, and a little short, balding man, but he began to speak without a note, without a Bible, without anything, and just went on. And even as a child, I can vaguely remember that night that I heard him. I'm so glad that my dad took me to, to his presence. And here's what he wrote about this verse. Listen to it carefully, and I quote, when we study the book of creation, when we look up into the heavens and look abroad over the earth, we find everything, or we find everywhere the evidences of divine power, might, and wisdom. I cannot understand intelligent people questioning the reality or the personality of God when they look out over this wonderful creation. If there were no mind behind this universe, the suns and the starry systems would have long ago crashed together, and the universe would have gone to pieces. But the one who created the universe is upholding all things in nature by the word of his power. This is the testimony of nature. And every man is responsible to heed that testimony. No honest man can look up into the heaven without the realization there must be a God and without the realization that that God is a God of order, a God of righteousness. And what is righteousness? It's simply orderliness. It is right doing. And this universe is run in an, honorly, in, in an orderly way, and therefore the testimony of the heavens alone is enough to convict a man of the need of repentance and of getting right with the God of the universe, end of quote. Isn't that powerful? How could you look up there and see those billions of stars and planets and solar systems and moons and comets all going on their courses and their pathways and say, all of this just happened. 
That takes more faith than to believe the Bible, doesn't it? That strains your credulity more than anything the Bible could ever say. The book of nature. Now, the book of nature tells me that God is great and that He's wise and that He has knowledge and He has power, but it doesn't tell me that He loves me as we just heard a beautiful song. So I could never look up in the heavens and know of God's love. I can know of His power and His wisdom and so on. So He wrote us a second book, and I begin in verse 7, and that is the book of Scripture. So I want you to go away from here, and when you hear Psalm 19 in the future, I want you to know this. Psalm 19, ah, that's the passage that says that God wrote two books. Book number one, the book of nature, in which he reveals his might and his power and his glory. But secondly, I want you to know that God wrote another book, a written book, a book that we call the Bible today, and that's special revelation. I recently read where a man said this about the Bible. He said, quote, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies that claim to be divine rather than human in origin. Man, I like that quote. Wow, that's what the Bible is. And it makes so much sense. Let me read it again. Here's why I believe the Bible. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses, and I would add to the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they, the eyewitnesses wrote it during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who reported these supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies that claimed to be divine rather than human in origin. What a great statement. It's a great statement of faith, but it's a great statement of logic and common sense. It's why we as intelligent people of the 21st century can hold in our hands the oldest written book on the earth, and we can say, we believe it. It's not antiquated. It's not out of date. It's as up-to-date as any book that you can purchase today. Ken Ham is the leader and founder of an organization called Answers in Genesis. He's the man that led in putting together the Creation Museum up in Florence, Kentucky, and then later built the Ark, and it, I've been to both of those, and boy, if you have a chance to go, I highly recommend it. It'll do as much for your faith as anything you can do. And Ken Ham said this about special revelation, the book of God. He said the Bible is a revelation from God. Listen to this. Who knows everything? everything there is to know about everything, who has revealed to us the elements of history that we need to understand so we can build a right worldview to understand the world around us. What a statement. The Bible is a revelation from God who knows everything there is to know about everything. And 
he gave it to us so we can build a right worldview. And we talk a lot about worldview here. Worldview is the glasses through which you see life, how you interpret life. And you either interpret life as a secularist, as a person doesn't believe in God, or you interpret life as a person who believes the Bible. Now, there's many different worldviews of secularism, but there's one worldview that we call a biblical worldview. We emphasize that in our school. We tell you the reason you ought to send your children to Florence Christian is because in Florence Christian, it's unique. They will be taught a biblical worldview. I can promise you every one of our teachers believe in a biblical worldview. And so that's the, the motivation for a Christian school with us. And this is a church that every time I walk up to this pulpit, I don't care what the subject is. You can pick the subject of anything I've ever preached on. I'm going to try to help shape the thinking of people to have a biblical worldview, to think like a Christian. It's the reason God gave us the Bible. If, if he wanted us to think like the rest of the unsaved world, then he would not have given it. He wouldn't have gone to all the trouble to give us his word and preserve his word. This book shapes our thinking. It's our worldview. And as I said, nature will teach you that God is powerful. Nature will teach you that God is great and wise and knowledgeable. But, but nature won't teach you of God's grace or his love or his mercy. Nature won't give you any prophetic insights as to where we came from, where, why we're here, and where we're going. And by the way, in just a couple of weeks, I'm going to start a series, and, and I've worked harder on this, I think, than any series I've done in many, many years, maybe ever. I'm going to start with the first word and the first verse of the Bible, and I'm going to preach through the 11 chapters of Genesis, which is, I believe, the 11 most important chapters of all in the Bible. Where do you get a worldview? Genesis 1 through 11. Where you get a biblical worldview? Genesis 1 through 11. And I hope you will come. I read where Ken Ham said, the reason we're losing young people from our churches is they don't understand the first 11 chapters of the Bible. So come, bring people. Let's do our best to to proclaim a biblical worldview to people out there today. Nature teaches us about God's wisdom and power, but God's written book was necessary to tell us of His love and mercy and holiness and His truth. And this is why, because the Bible is so unique that it's under such great attack today. And don't think it's not under attack Oh, people don't say we're getting ready to attack the Bible, but what they do is they teach something absolutely uh, contrary to the Bible, and in essence, they attack it without saying they're attacking it, and it kind of, it's coming at us from every front today, politically, economically, governmentally, uh, personally, emotionally, spiritually. Pick, pick your direction on the compass. It's coming at us from all 360 degrees right now. Satan has always wanted to distort the Word of God. Look at the first temptation, Genesis chapter 3. 
And Satan has always lied about the Word of God, and he's doing it today. And so I hope you'll come for that series, but this morning we're looking at this. And it tells us about how God has so magnified his own Word. There's a verse there in Psalm 138, verse 2. You might want to flip over there a moment and look at the last phrase of Psalm 138, 2. And it says that God has magnified his word above his name. He's magnified his word, his written word, above his name. Well, his name defines his character, describes his character to us. But above that even, he's honored his word. That's why here at the church, we have this high view of Scripture. We magnify the Word. We hold it up. Now, let's look in verse 7 here. And let me quickly show you how the Lord or how the Scripture describes itself. And there's six statements I want to look at real quickly with you. Now, I want you to notice how this is organized. But that way it'll make, it will simplify it and make good sense to you, I hope. First of all, in six different times here, it, it gives a name for the Word of God. Like in verse 7, it's the law of God, the law of the Lord. And in verse 7, it's the testimony of the Lord. In verse 8, it's the statutes of the Lord. In verse 8, it's the commandment of the Lord. In verse 9, it's the fear of the Lord. In verse 9, it's the judgment of the Lord. So there are six different names, all of them referring to Scripture. And then, if you will notice, after the name, it describes the Scripture. There's a one-word description of it. And then thirdly, there is the effect that the Scripture then has upon us. So you have the name of the Scripture, six different names, six different words that describe it, and then the effect of it its effect upon our lives. All right, let's look at them real quickly. In verse 7, it's called the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. You know what a law is. It's a statute passed by some authority, someone who has the authority to pass that law that affects people's behavior. And here, the law is of the Lord. The Lord passed the, these are God's laws. And we're to listen to them and and let those laws guide us and direct our lives. And it says here, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, the word perfect in your Bible means two things, one of two things, and sometimes both of them. First of all, it means it's flawless. So this is a statement about the perfection of the Word of God. The Word of God is not full of mistakes and contradictions. The Word of God is flawless, if you will, meaning it is without error. And so I use the word often inerrant. Inerrant means no errors in it. The word, so the laws of God are flawless, without error, inerrant. But it also has the idea of wholeness, the word perfect in your Bible, of completion. It's the idea of Nothing is lacking that needs to be there. And so you hold in your hand a book. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing that's been left out or neglected. 
that God believes you need. It's there for you. And you will notice the law of the Lord is perfect. Notice the effect of it. It converts the soul. Salvation, the source of our salvation, is the Word of God. The Bible talks about us being born of incorruptible seed. And so it converts the soul. The soul, as I've told you so many times, your mind, your emotions, and your will. It doesn't convert your body. That's why we have so many troubles physically. It doesn't convert the body. It converts the soul. And so every part of our spiritual being, our ability to think, our feelings and emotions, and our wills, the, the part of us that makes decisions, intelligent decisions, reasoned decisions, our complete being. And the Bible says the law of the Lord is what brings that conversion process into being. And the agent for that, of course, is the gospel, that we are lost, that we're helpless, we cannot save ourselves, that there's a death penalty upon us because of our sins. A righteous death penalty is upon us. But that Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose again the third day. He's a living Savior, ascended to the right hand of God. And that if we put our faith in Him, that He will come into our lives and convert our souls. Not our bodies, our souls. The way we think, the way we feel, and the choices that we make in life are going to be different if my soul is converted. And then in verse 7, it refers to the testimony of the Lord. And so you know what a testimony is. A testimony is an account that a witness gives. Somebody sees something happen, they give a, they give a testimony of it. You had an experience in your life, and you testify about that. Well, this is the testimony of the Lord. Don't you think the Lord's testimony is a reliable testimony? Sure you do. You have it. You have it in a book form right here in your hand. The testimony of the Lord. What does it say about it? It makes it, it maketh sure. Now the word sure there has the idea of absolutely trustworthy. The idea of integrity. That I can hold my Bible and say, this is a book of integrity. It's been around for over 2,000 years. Every attempt in all that man could conjure up has been made to destroy it, and yet it's still here. It's here because it has integrity. It's truth. In fact, Jesus referred to it as truth. And what is the effect? It makes wise the simple, simple, simple. Look at that word simple. It has the idea of people who are naive, or it has the idea of people who lack discernment, people who have poor judgment. Their judgment is flawed. And the Bible says, if I will take God's testimony, how He testifies about things, and apply that in my life, that He will take that sure testimony, and He'll make me wise. 
Who is a wise man? James asked. Well, among other things, it's a man who knows the Word of God and applies it in his, in his life. And then look in verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right. What is a statute? A statute is a mandate. A mandate. A direct order, if you will. A statute is non-optional. You don't get to vote on whether you want to do it or not. A statute is a law that has been passed. It's described here as being right, meaning that it gives clear direction, a correct path to help us avoid the pitfalls of life. And what is the effect of it? Look in verse 8. It rejoices the heart. If you, I promise you this, if you'll get into the Word of God and read it and absorb it into your mind and into your emotions, it'll produce a joy in your heart that's inexplicable. You won't be able to explain it. But understanding and obeying, and the key words is the last one, obeying the Word of God will bring joy. Do you know why so many Christians are joyless? Because they're not into God's book. And then in verse 8, it says, the commandment of the Lord. There's another name for it. And a commandment, again, is non-optional. It's non-optional. It's a binding statement that is made upon us. Our maker surely has the right to make binding statements upon us if he made us, doesn't he? And we call those his commandments. It's not talking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about everything that God has commanded us to do. And look how it's described. It's pure. In other words, God's commandments, there is an absence of impurities or imperfections. And the effect of that is what? It brings light to our eyes. It gives us insights. It gives us understanding that we would not have if we didn't look into God's book. And then in verse 9, a very strange term for it. The Bible is called, or it calls itself here, the fear of the Lord, a synonym for God's Word. Warren Wiersbe, the great expositor, said, this is an unusual name for the Bible, but it reminds us that we cannot learn the Word of God unless we show reverence and respect for the God of the Word. To teach the Bible is to teach the fear of the Lord. To teach the Bible is to teach people to fear the Lord. Notice the description of it, the fear of the Lord, synonym for the Bible, is clean. And the idea of the word clean there in the Hebrew is that it's not confusing, that it has clarity, it's clearly understood. The Bible really is a simple book. We, we think it's hard and there are some obscure passages. You get, usually the problem is we don't understand the background, the context of it. But the Bible is not a difficult book. The Bible was met, written so that it would bring clarity and not confusion to us. You can understand your Bible. And then I want you to notice the effect of that. It endures forever. You're in 19, and in verse... And, and uh, Psalm 12, turn back to Psalm 12. And in chapter 12 and verse number 6, 
the words of the Lord. That would be the written book of God, the Bible. They're pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And the idea comes of the, the old metal worker in the old days, the ancient days. He builds his furnace out of earth because it is going to be so hot, anything else would melt. And he has a bellows, and he pumps oxygen and air in there, and that thing gets so hot that he puts a little piece of silver in it, and it melts it. And he takes it out, and he skims the impurities which have risen to the top off of it, and he puts it back in, and he melts it again. And then he takes any tiny amount of impurities and scrapes the top and flings them away, puts it back in. Seven times, seven times he goes through that till that silver is so pure. It is as pure as it can be. And the Bible says that's what God did with his word. The word of God is like the silver purified seven times in the earthly furnace of that metal worker back in those days. That's why every attempt to destroy it has met with failure, because it is the enduring, pure Word of God. And lastly, in verse 9, it's called the judgments of the Lord. What is a judgment? That's a verdict by a judge. A judgment is a written decree that a judge hands down to people that they must comply with. And notice, and by the way, we will be judged by the Word of God, the Bible says, not by the testimony of other people. When I stand before the Lord, the basis of my judgment is the Word. And notice, if you will, how it's described. God's verdicts, His judgments are true and righteous altogether. And there we, again, have repeated the idea of the veracity, the integrity, the truthfulness of the Word of God. And what is its effect? More to be desired than gold. I looked up on my computer the other day, how much is gold worth? And a few days ago, when I did the research, it was worth $1,900 an ounce. One little one-ounce coin, $1,900. But the Bible is more to be desired than gold and sweeter than the honeycomb. Isn't it a great book? You understand today why we just want to preach a sermon every now and then and do a tribute to the Word of God itself? I met a man a few years ago. His name was Craig Lamp. He's in heaven now. He was from West Virginia, so we had something in common, except that he was a great scholar. And he wrote a number of books on the Bible. And one of them is called The Forbidden Book. And he gave me a copy of it. I have it in my library. And I read to you, and I know I'm pushing my time limits, but Come back and listen to me. I want you to hear this, and then we'll be dismissed. It's called The Forbidden Book by Craig Lamp, page 86. How a man spends his latter years is a true sign of what drives and motivates him. Our nation's first president, 
of the U.S. and Congress assembled, which would be like our Speaker of the House today, was a patriot of French Huguenot stock named Elias Boutino. Elias Boutino was the founder of the American Bible Society in 1816 after he had left Congress. The goals of the society that Boutino set were to make God's Word known to all classes of society and to ensure that every immigrant, listen to this, every immigrant would receive a Bible if they so desired. The job would require the distribution of hundreds of millions of Bibles in the decades to follow. John Jay was the head of George Washington's Secret Service during the War of Independence. And he was honored by President Johnson or Washington after his election to become the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Jay spent his last years, though, leaving the court and becoming the third president of the American Bible Society, carrying out the purposes of Elias Bettino. John Quincy Adams was the sixth president of the United States, and he would also become, in due time, the sixth president of the American Bible Society in his declining years. America was great because of her belief system and the God-fearing men and women who risk everything to establish freedom. This is the nation where God's Word went free. It was unbounded. It was loosed. And it resulted in the establishment of great institutions and a society designed for a reliance and belief in God's Word. No other religion could have tolerated and perpetuated Republican government, a social contract, listen, that esteemed the citizen above governmental authority. But we're losing those freedoms that over a million people have died for on the battlefields to defend because we've turned from what got us here, the Bible, the Word of God, Sola Scriptura. Our heads are bowed. Stand with me to your feet, please.